I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest is recognized as one of the top dual sport professional athletes and Olympians of all time. And she and I have a lot of fun overlaps that you'll hear more about during this episode. Aaron Aldridge Sheen is a 2000 U.S. Olympian in track and field, a five-time U.S. national volleyball team member, and she graduated from the University of Texas at Austin. In 2000, Aaron was named Big 12 Athlete of the Year and finished her storied career at UT with four high jump national championships, a collegiate high jump record of six feet, five and a half inches, and eight first team All-American honors in both volleyball and track and field. Following a stint of four professional volleyball seasons in Italy and one season in Japan, Erin returned to the University of Texas to the Macomb School of Business. And during that time, she was inducted into the UT Hall of Honor for her athletic and academic accomplishments as a Longhorn. Erin is currently a high performance and mindset coach and works with both athletes and individuals to awaken their Olympian within. During our conversation, we get into how in the world she managed not just to balance two sports at the highest collegiate level at the same time, but how she excelled at both and then went on to the Olympics and the professional level. I'm not going to lie. It's crazy impressive. Erin also brings awareness to some tough issues surrounding the reporting process for grooming and abuse within the NCAA system, and she shares her advice for athletes. And probably my favorite part of our talk is an awesome story about her dad and how everything literally changed overnight. So listen up for that amazing moment. Hey, if you want to start harnessing your mental game, but you're not sure where to start, I have the perfect gift for you. I created a free guide with the top 10 mental skills that every athlete must have. It's a checklist, a guide, and a self-assessment to help you kickstart your journey to confidence. Go grab your copy over at laurawilkinson.com skills. That's laurawilkinson.com slash skills. All right, before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. Please tell your friends and family about this podcast because that helps us grow and improve to that next level because I want to keep bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Aaron Aldridge Sheen, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. It is always nice to have a fellow Longhorn in the room. Yay, hook them. <laughs> now, what years did we overlap? Because we were both on the 2000 team together, but what years were you at UT? So I transferred to UT from Arizona in 97. I think it was my track season. So it must have been spring. And then I graduated in 2001. I should have graduated in 2000, but I took that semester off. I don't know if you did the same yeah. because of the Olympics. I took like a year and a half off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I took this semester off because I was like, there's no way I'm doing this and competing in the Olympics. And so then I came back and graduated in 2001. That's right. Because I knew we overlapped in there. I was kind of the same. I went there in fall of 96, but then, yeah, left after the spring of 99 and came back in January of 01. So, yeah, we're kind of a similar, <laughs> similar pattern there. That's cool. Similar. Yeah, I think we started... I think we're exactly the same age because did you graduate in 96? Yes, but see, we're very young. They don't need to know that on the show. No, can just no, no. Don't we're... back into the age. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody do math right now. Nobody no do math. No one do math. We're all dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So 
it was so funny because I knew you as a high jumper and you were this incredible high jumper. And I had no idea for a long time. I don't think that you also were like this amazing volleyball player. So I want to like back up to the beginning. Like, were you always this multi-sport athlete? Like, what did you start with when you were younger? Always, always multi-sport. I just think I couldn't get enough of like sports in general. So the story goes that in 19, well, we're going to back into ages again, right? Okay. So nobody do math. Earmuffs. But in 1984, I um, was on a motorhome trip with my family. We used to go on a motorhome trip every summer for about a month and try to hit all the 50 states. That was the goal for when my brother and I got into high school. And um, on one of our motorhome trips, we were watching the 1984 Olympics on television. And I turned to my parents and I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to be an Olympian one day. And my parents were like, oh, it's good to have goals and dreams, honey. And (laughs) I could tell they weren't taking me seriously. So I was like, no, I don't think you understand. I'm going to be an Olympian one day. And it was at that time that I didn't really realize what sport it was. I just knew I had to do it. It was ever since then that I was just on a complete mission for the goal. And I started in every sport. So I was I think the first sport I, one of the first sports I ever did was gymnastics. And we all know how that would go for someone who ends up being six, one didn't last for very long, a little more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's probably good for you, but not for me. And then I also did ballet Uh, again, not great for my personality because I just was a little too antsy. And so I just don't think I could sit still for long enough, but I had to go for five years because I got a trophy at five years. So it was really important. So the commitment and the perseverance were already built into your system. (laughs) I think if that what it is (laughs) already there. And my parents were like, good Lord, who have we raised? We're having to pay for five years of ballet just for a plastic trophy. But at least that gave them some insight into who I was. And then I started tennis and I got really serious in tennis, loved it. That was actually what people don't know is the third sport that I was recruited for out of high school to go to college in, but I didn't play tennis in college. I ended up just picking two. And then I did everything like softball, basketball with SBAA and and all those things. And then when I hit junior high, that was when I went, started to go through that progression of like, okay, you're going to play volleyball and then basketball and then track, you know? So I got to try them all out. And that was the first exposure I had to volleyball and I just loved it. And then when I got to track season, of course, they're like, well, you're really tall and thin. So go. Were you tall early? Were you tall? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was always tall. It was interesting though, because I grew like at a really steady rate. So I never had that like massive growth spurt that'll kind of throw you off, like, you know, with coordination and all that. So I was really lucky to kind of gradually grow. So I started high jumping because they were like, tall girl, go over there to the high jump pit. And it was just a very natural sport for me. I always tell the story that when I was younger, we had like a really long one story house and I would start from one end when it, whenever I had to go to my room, I'd start from one end and, and run through the house, hurtling the Ottomans and touching the door jams like every single time. So it was kind of just built in me to jump off of one foot, you know, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it's just always been a multi-sport athlete, loved it. Don't know if I could have ever done it any other way. And I think it was great for development. 
Oh yeah, for sure. It's just so funny for me to hear that because I was so the polar opposite. Like I just did gymnastics, then I just did diving. Like I, you know, it was always just one hyper focused. It's just a different thing for me. Like my kids are trying out all different sports right now, so it's just this really weird. I'm like, how are you not doing this thirty hours a week? Like at, at your age, I was, <laughs> you know, I was doing this thirty hours a week. Like how are you getting better? You know, I just don't understand. So it's fun to hear like just all the different ways people really kind of you know learn and grow and thrive and stuff. I would love to hear from your perspective how you feel about multi-sport versus focusing on one, because I think we could like really go back and forth on that and then and come up with all the pros and cons of both, you know, styles. But, you know, also for you as a diver and a gymnast, those are sports that I feel like take an enormous amount of commitment and time. And it's kind of like ice skating. I feel like ice skating is another one of those things. And I I could be wrong, figure skating. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think there are certain sports that maybe that is the way to go. And that's what's expected. Yeah. And I think we're all kind of wired a little different too. You know, like, like what you said, we may not have a temperament for ballet, but it may be more for like, like I look at my youngest and I'm like, oh, you just need something where you can just go all day. Like she's going to do like long distance running or something. We're, we're in this little volleyball camp right now. And it's like, they have her going an entire hour and a half. I'm like, this is what you need. Like, this is good for you. For, and it's funny. Cause like hearing from all different athletes, like on this show, I always ask them, cause I'm just curious. And so many, they either started in their sport and like did that the whole time like they just found it and that was their thing or they tried everything. And like, even after I did gymnastics, like I tried a bunch of sports before I found diving. Like I didn't even know that was a thing for a while. So I tried tennis and track and softball. You know, I was decent at all of them, but like they just, I missed flipping. Like I was, I had grown up flipping and, and being an acrobat. So like that was just kind of my calling was I needed something where I could fly, you know, and flip in the air and stuff like that. But I think like when you have a base like gymnastics or like now like Ninja Warrior type stuff too, like you learn how to use your whole body in such a way that I think you can kind of do anything after those. <laughs> so I think if you're starting in something, yeah, like gymnastics or Ninja Warrior, something full body like that, you can go on to do a lot. Otherwise, I think it's great to try a whole bunch just all the time until you find your thing, you know? Yeah. And I love that you said like to start out with like the gymnastics or the ninja or whatever. And I did that. It's just that I knew that I wasn't going to be, you know, a professional or Olympic gymnast because of my height. But I've even done the same thing with my kids who are five and a half and eight. Now they are both in gymnastics and we know that they are not, I mean, I I hate to break it to them, but they are not going to (laughs) be gymnasts because they're- Your husband's taller than you are, isn't he? (laughs) Yes. And so they're supposed to be like- six, seven when they grow up, but they are learning such good body awareness skills that I think are going to really transfer into other parts of their life as far as athletes are concerned. So I have them in gymnastics for that reason. And I think, you know, when I was younger, a little bit different than maybe your path, but I had the goal. I had the goal in mind and it was then figuring out what sport it was going to be. So I had I had my eye on a prize. It was just like, okay, this is what I want to do. Now I got to figure out how I'm going to get it done, you know, and what sport that's going to be. I wasn't all that different because I it was the 84 Olympics also, earmuffs people. And I saw Mary Lou Retton do her perfect 10 vault. And I was like, that is going to be me. I am winning an Olympic gold medal 
in gymnastics. <laughs> but well, you almost did the same thing. I was a mediocre gymnast. I was I was kind of your average, you know, level nine dropout. But I was like, at that point, I it was exactly like you. Like, I still want to do this. I still want to win a gold at the Olympic Games. I just need to find a sport for it. And so that's why I kept trying a bunch of different stuff until I found diving. And so, yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. I was wired exactly the same. Under some pretty amazing circumstances, I must add, about the foot and all that. I mean, it's like pretty insane. I've always like really admired that you were able to get through that. Talk about some resilience and all those things, which we can go into as far as like But we're going to talk about you today, Erin. <laughs> we can get into coaching stuff later, for sure, for sure. Well, tell me, okay, when you are that good at all of these sports and you're getting to high school, are you having to start narrowing it down or like are all the seasons not overlapping so you can still do all of the things? Yeah. So, I mean, I had to narrow it down a little bit because obviously I couldn't do five or six sports at the same time. It got to be a little bit difficult. I think I did that when I was younger and just was in everything and just did like two different sports every season. So it ended up kind of working. So when I was in junior high and seventh, we just had junior high and high school. We didn't have middle middle school. So it was seventh, eighth, ninth, and then 10th, 11th, 12th. And I did volleyball, basketball, track, and then I did soccer and tennis on the side. So I was also a very competitive soccer player. That's still five sports, girl. (laughs) That is five sports. (laughs) You narrowed it down to five. (laughs) (laughs) Narrowed it down. I'd forgotten about soccer. I loved soccer. And I, my claim to fame is that when we were in 12s, (laughs) we won the national championship in soccer. So like I was, I played for a club called Sting which if anybody is in Texas listening to this, they are probably aware of the club, but really, really great club, had an excellent team. A lot of them went to play in college. Again, I grew out of being a soccer player. I was just really tall and thin and just not built that way. But yeah, at that time I was doing, I guess, five sports. And then I got into high school and that's where I kind of was like, okay, like let's hone it in a little bit and focus And so I dropped soccer and I dropped basketball of all things, because people are like, did you play basketball? And I'm like, no. And it was just, you know, I just didn't like the physicality, I guess, of basketball, but I absolutely loved volleyball. I loved track and field. And I kept playing tennis as well, just because I put so much time and energy into it. That's another sport where I feel like you have to put like lots of hours into it. How does that work? Because like, granted me, the one sport athlete, like it was just, you do your sport and you try to see if you can go to college, you know, on a scholarship or something like that's the big goal. But like, I've never heard of somebody going to, I mean, like a very rare thing, somebody going to college in more than one sport and you were being recruited for three. Like, did you never even think you had to narrow it down? Like, were you trying to make it in all of them? How, like, where was your brain? Because that just sounds like such a crazy monumental thing to try and do. Yeah. You know, (laughs) Laura, I think you're talking to somebody who is like kind of an overachiever over here, which I know I'm talking to someone like that too. We can both be overachievers and wired differently. That's okay. Yes. Exactly. I mean, not every overachiever is wired the same. So my overachiever mindset is like, I knew that I probably wasn't going to go to the Olympics in tennis, which is why I ended up narrowing it down even further for college and only doing two instead of three. But I did really make the decision once I got into junior high, I think I was kind of like, okay, my sports that I want to do in college are volleyball and track. 
and I want to go to the Olympics one day. And then when I got into high school, I was like, okay, I don't want to just make an Olympic team in one sport. I want to make an Olympic team in two sports because I know that that has like very rarely been done. I mean, it's like a handful of people. Well, I was going to say, I've heard of a couple of winter Olympians in summer, like that have done winter and summer, but never two summers. Is that, is that a thing? I really don't think, I think there's less than a handful maybe. And so I wanted to be part of that group. So, (laughs) so I thought, yes, there have been a few like winter, summer, bobsled, track and field, you know, those kinds of things. But I wanted to be a dual sport summer, summer. And so I made that my goal. And I I ended up going to college on a volleyball scholarship. So I was a freebie on the track. I don't know if like (laughs) people understand how that works, but I think most people would be like, oh, you had a track scholarship, but I was on a full volleyball scholarship and not any money for track. So the track team was like, sweet, we get a a freebie over here. (laughs) But yeah, I think that, you know, it was really in high school where I was like, I want to do two sports in the Olympics. And so I chose a school where I felt like had was going to give me the opportunity to develop as an athlete in both. But I wanted to make my first team on the track because, you know, in my mind, I was like, I want to knock that one off the bucket list because it's an individual sport. And I feel like it's going to be really hard to make it in an individual sport. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I almost think it might be making it on the volleyball court adds a whole nother element, right? You have to have good camaraderie with your team and and there's like- It's a little more political political piece to it, right? And it's a subjective sport. So there's not objectivity. And picking the team, right? Yeah, when picking the team. So one person can think this person deserves it. Another person can think this person deserves it. So I found volleyball to actually be a lot more difficult than I had anticipated and track to be- more simple because with my mind, I was like, you jump X high, you make the Olympic team. Like it's simple. So, but I did make my mind up to make my first Olympic team on the track. And that's when I made it in 2000. And then after 2000. So walk me back before we, you can't just glaze over making the Olympic team. It's kind of a big deal. So walking into that, what was trials and your experience of making that team like? Yeah. So I went to my first Olympic trials, my senior year in high school. I don't know if you went to the trials your senior year. I missed that one by two points. It was a little devastating, but that's okay. Oh, no. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Well, my first trials, it was in Atlanta, 96. They were holding the trials there as well. And I went to my first trials and pretty narrowly missed it my first time in high school, my senior year. Really? What were you jumping in high school? I think I jumped six, two and three quarters in high school. Dang, girl. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty proud of that, Mark. I think it was pretty good. I mean, I think the high school record, I think it was the number two jump of all time. And I think the number one jump of all time was maybe six, three and a half or could be six, four. But I had a few really good attempts at that as well. So I barely missed making the Olympic team in high school. I think six, two and a quarter might've been what I jumped or six, two and three quarters. And I think that was like a tie. The height was tied for fifth or something. They take three. Of course, in order to go to the Olympics, I would have had to have jumped maybe six, four at the time to get the standard. So I would have had to have gone on after that to try to get that standard. But that was a pretty good showing as a high school athlete, just to even like 
make a height at that level. I'll say, yeah. I was proud of that performance. And then at that time I was like, oh goodness, like I had a little taste of what it might feel like. So like the next one is we're on, like it's happening. (laughs) It's not going to not happen. So it went pretty smoothly through college. I want to know. So you go to this, you know, in Atlanta, you have this great experience at trials and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm on the right track. Like I'm going to kill it next time. But like in this four years in between, you are doing two different sports at university and a transfer in there as well. And like, I think you won, didn't you win four titles at UT also? Yeah, won four national championships as an individual in the high jump and then four national championships as a team because we won a lot of national championships as a team during that time too. We just had a really stacked track team at that time. Yeah, I'll say. So how do you guys like, well, how do you specifically focus for the Olympics while you're also going to school and doing two sports at the very top level? I mean, how do you balance all of that? Because I couldn't even balance just diving in school. Like that was almost too much for me. Yeah. I kind of looked at it as like my season and my off season. Of course, I love... Did you have an off season? (laughs) Well, I mean, no. But (laughs) in my head, I kind of considered my volleyball season to be my off season of track. You know, and, and volleyball for me as a team sport was you know, really fun. I loved playing the sport. I got lots of really good reps without realizing it. Yeah. Just all the jumping. Yes. And I was a middle blocker. So I'm not sure if you or the people listening to this podcast are aware of kind of how it works, but I would go off of one foot behind the setter. It's called a slide. And so it was very, very almost identical to a high jump takeoff. Oh, wow. So if you can imagine being a middle blocker and being a high jumper, they're super complimentary. And so I was getting like great cross training, (laughs) massive, yes, massive reps off of one foot. And so oftentimes, not really how I had planned or wanted it to go, but oftentimes I would jump my best marks as a high jumper right off of my volleyball season, which to me was a testament that I had built such good, fast twitch jumping ability off of one foot and the ability to get off the ground so quickly on the volleyball court that it transferred onto the track to give me some of my best marks right into the early part of the track season. Now, that's so interesting. The problem with that is that I need those marks to be at the end of the season, not the beginning. (laughs) But it was really hard to keep that conditioning and training going for the end of the season because I was getting such good bounce right off my volleyball season. So the training that you would do for high jump, was it totally different from volleyball? Like the weights or whatever, whatever other stuff that you're doing, was it completely different? Like, do you think it was just the actual court time and playing that position is what gave you? Yeah. Wow. It's very different just as far as the setting is concerned. One is like on a a wood court. Mm -hmm. And then the other is on a track. And, you know, I'm, I'm having to, on the track, I'm having to like really put myself in those situations to get those reps in, you know, I'm having to let's do box jumps or let's do plyos today. And you're having to like put yourself in those situations to get that training in volleyball. It's like, let's have a practice today. And 
that training is going to come just naturally through practice. So it's just a little different. Did you ever think about playing volleyball during your track season just for fun? Right. I did. (laughs) I honestly really did. I thought, you know, maybe if I just a day or two a week, go train with the volleyball team and just run slides all day, maybe that would be a good thing. I never, I think I may have tried that a few times, but I never did it consistently enough to really get enough good data from it. Were your coaches pretty understanding, like going, this is my season with you, this is my season with you, and there's not a lot of crossover? Like, were they okay giving you up and not having control of your training? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. This is what I see a lot in high school athletes and even college athletes where the coaches can't agree on things. But I think I was just lucky in that respect because I I had leverage. The volleyball coach didn't want me to quit volleyball and go just to track. And the track coach didn't want me to quit track to go just to volleyball. So like they kind of like were forced to like collaborate. They both needed you. Yeah. That's a good situation to find yourself in. (laughs) It is a good situation to find yourself in. I feel like it pains me to have to watch some athletes who just love both sports and want to do both sports and are good enough to do both sports, not have coaches that are willing to work with them. And I think like when you are an athlete that can compete on the international level in either one of them or both of them, then you kind of have leverage. When it comes to that kind of thing, of course, volleyball was paying for my scholarship, but still I, you know, was that the same situation at UT also? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Volleyball. They were paying for my scholarship. And so I imagine that they were kind of like, well, we're giving her a scholarship. But at the same time, I just feel like I had a little bit of leverage with it. So I was in a good situation and I totally realized that not all athletes are in that same situation. That's awesome. Now we're coming to the end of college. We're coming up to 2000 and you're going to make that run for the team again. What was that journey like? Lots of ups and downs. I don't know what your journey was like, but I don't know any athlete that was like, oh yeah, it was smooth sailing the entire time. (laughs) We wouldn't have a podcast if that was the case. Right, exactly. There would be nothing for me to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, It actually was fairly smooth sailing through my years at, or my year and a half at Arizona and then my first part at Texas. And then, you know, just to be totally transparent, I discovered 6th Street or 5th Street. Fourth, fifth, and sixth. Would you like to tell our audience what that is if they're not familiar with Austin? (laughs) Fourth, fifth, and sixth street are where all of the clubs are and bars and things (laughs) that you can get into trouble with. So, you know, I was still like a really good student and athlete and kid and never got into trouble, all those things. But it did, like I did kind of for the first time in my life go, oh, there's life out there beyond sports, you know, till then it was like blinders on, like I didn't care about anything, but making an Olympic team. And that kind of created a little bit of a hitch. And I quickly reeled myself back in and got back after it. But, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of exciting to discover social life and all that. And then I did go through this period. It was in 1999. I remember my coach and I had running into just, you know, butting heads a lot. And I think it would not be normal for an athlete to not butt heads with their coach at least once or twice or a few different times during their career. But I just remember us butting heads a lot and just 
going through that, like, who am I? What do I want to do? And all these things, but knowing like the Olympics is coming up soon. And I, during this period, I couldn't even jump over a five foot 10 bar. It was like, I was so in my head. It was kind of like the Simone Biles, like twisties thing. Like that's kind of how I felt of like, I don't know how to do this anymore. Like what's wrong with my body? It doesn't do what I want it to do anymore. And it was so close to coming up on the Olympics in 2000. And I just remember being like, what the heck? Like, I can't let this get in the way of how many years have I trained since I was six, basically, to try to make this Olympic team. Barely missed it in in 1996. Not going to happen. I remember being like down in the dumps and we were in Florida at the world or Disney World track. There's like some sort of an event center over there. And our coach would take us to a different place every spring break. And we would do a track meet and just kind of enjoy ourselves during the spring break period. We were in Florida at the time in Orlando. I was having this really awful period of time in the high jump. Couldn't get myself to do anything not doing well with my coach. And I remember calling my dad and my mom in Dallas. And I remember that being like one of the lowest periods of my life and being like, I don't know what to do. I'm in such a rut right now. And I remember my dad saying, Aaron, sit right there. I'm on the next flight out. He literally packed a carry-on bag rushed to the airport, jumped on the next American Airlines flight, flew to Orlando and was there. And I remember just being like so relieved that someone from my family was there. I just felt the love, you know? The reason that I always come back to this story is because the next day I had to high jump and I was like, holy cow, what's going to happen? I ended up PRing. Really? And jumping six, four and a quarter. (laughs) And you weren't going over five, 10 before that. I wasn't. I wasn't. And that's a huge, I mean... (laughs) six and a quarter inches, like that's, or six and a half, that's a lot of inches. It's a centimeter is a huge PR in the high jump. And so I felt so much love for my family who cared enough about me and really recognized the desperation in my voice to be like, I can't let her go through this on her own anymore. You know, like I got to step in. So my dad came I got like some good time with him. I got to go to dinner with him and then wake up the next morning, go to breakfast and then competed. And it was a very laid back meet, but I just had such a good meet and it had to have had something to do with that because I had been not able to clear 510 for like two months or three months at that point. And it was just ridiculous. From that point forward, it was like game on. I felt back in action. I love so, so many aspects of that. It's like he just kind of broke through, right? He just kind of broke the rut, reminded you that he loves you no matter what. You're at your lowest. Like he loves you. It doesn't matter anymore, right? And then just takes that pressure off and it kind of releases you. You know what I mean? Like that's so beautiful. And and to have a dad that is willing to just up and go like that. Oh, I'm like tearing up. Like that's just so... Yeah. Like I wish everybody had a dad like that. You know, that's so cool. I know. You just realize like what's important in life, you know, and then also how close you are to breaking through that it's something so small, like one little shift 
can help you to break through to the other side. Like huge breakthrough. Yeah. Huge breakthrough. But it's yeah. not technique. It's not your strength. It's not this stuff. It's completely inside your head and your heart. And exactly. that's making those shifts make the biggest difference for sure. 100% agree. So how far out was trials from that point? That was what? Spring break. So like March, April. And then the trials were uh, June or so from the following year. So it was about a year and a couple months. Oh, okay. Okay. That was the year before. Gotcha. 14 months maybe away. Was trials like that smooth? Like, were you just feeling good? Like, did that kind of break through everything and it was just clear sailing from that point on or no? Well, as clear sailing as it can be. I mean, you always have like those nerves of like, like, this doesn't go the way that I want it to go. Because similar to your sport, it is a performance on that day. So it can't be messed up in any way. You can't be sick on that day. You can't have just an off day. You have to perform well and win on that day to go. That's why it's such a, you know, gosh, it's just such a nerve wracking sport such as yours. It was as smooth sailing, I feel, as it could have been. Of course, you know, I was nervous and all those things, but I was jumping well leading up to the trials. And I feel like my breakthrough was that moment in Orlando. Oh, that's so cool. So what was the Olympics like for you? Was it everything you hoped and dreamed of? Was it great? Was it awful? Was it like, what was your Olympic experience? It's so it's so interesting how people always envision it and then what it actually is. <laughs> I hate to say this, but it's so blurry to me. I don't know how you feel. I don't have very many clear memories particularly of the actual performance of the day that I competed. I don't know why that is. I wish, and I don't wish that we had social media back then because everybody else, I feel like gets to document their experience really well now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We didn't. I had like a little like disposable camera, I think, that I took into the opening ceremony. Develop our film and hope it goes well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have all those things. I have pictures, but I mean, I don't even think we were really technically allowed to bring a camera in, although I think I snuck one in. Technically all did. (laughs) But the day that I competed, I don't really have a lot of memory of that, which makes me really, really sad. I do remember things about the Olympic Village I remember in my mind that this was going to be a quote unquote trial run for me, that I never really treated it like I need to go there and win a medal because I was so young for a track athlete. So I thought it would be one of like four or five games for me. The moral of that story is carpe diem, like seize the moment, seize the day, because you never know if you're going to get another shot. And unfortunately, I didn't because I switched sports after Sydney and tried to make it on the volleyball court and ended up making it right until the very end and then not getting the nod on the volleyball court. And then I ended up being an alternate on the track. So I was kind of like a dual sport next one (laughs) for 2004. Dude, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, that's definitely not the place you want to be. And then right before Beijing, I was playing volleyball professionally in Japan and I completely blew out my knee. Match point, 15, 14 in the fifth set. Like, you know, you only go to 15 in the fifth set just for people that don't know. So it was kind of tie break of a tie break and came down on my right 
leg a little bit off balance and it just blew out my entire knee. I had just turned 30. So I was like, well, happy birthday to me. That was right before Beijing. So I couldn't get my knee reconstructed and make it back in time. And that was when I also decided, okay, there will be life after sport and I need to figure things out and I'm going to go back to school and get my MBA. And so I went back to UT and I went to the Macomb School of Business, got my MBA. And then after getting my MBA, I thought, well, now that I have an MBA, I must use it. (laughs) All to say that just life circumstances happen. And looking back on that decision of thinking, oh, this is just going to be a trial run. I wish I would have taken it a little bit more seriously. But at the same time, if I really dig deep, I was burned out by that time. I had been going in season for so many years and I was emotionally and mentally and physically worn out. And I think my excuse for that was like, this is just a trial run. Don't worry about it. You'll be able to be in better condition for this next time. Kind of like a coping mechanism a little bit. Yeah. I always thought like I would medal in the Olympics one day and I would take a run at the world record and all these things. And Life doesn't always go as we carefully plan it to go, right? After that, and then the heartbreak in 04, like, how do you move on after that? Like, I can't imagine, I mean, just missing out on one event is heartbreaking enough, but to miss out on two like that, I think at volleyball, they probably decided like last minute too, I'm guessing. And the track trials are right before also. I mean, how did you handle that? I got the wind that it wasn't going to make it on the volleyball court. And so I left USA Volleyball so that I could go and focus completely on the track and trying to make it on the track in 2004. And I think I had probably like three or four months to pull it together to try to make it on the track. So are you trying to just put your feelings aside and just focus on track, like just trying to ignore it kind of thing? And just say, okay, well, didn't go as planned. You know, I look back on that. We had a a Japanese coach. His name was Toshi Yoshida. He loved height for obvious reasons. You know, on the volleyball court, it's like the taller, the better. And I was the shortest middle blocker by far. I felt, you know, I was probably a couple inches shorter than the next shortest blocker. And he really valued height. So what I realized is that Yeah, you know, there might have been some changes that I could have made politically, you know, on the team and all that. But there were things that were just never going to be who I was. I was never going to be 6'3". I was going to be stuck at 6'1". And that's something that you can't coach. Just kind of was like out of my full control. And I had to realize that. And so I went and tried to make the best out of the last few months before the track and field trials and cram an Olympic team on the track and was actually jumping really, really well in the prelim. I I was like, holy cow, I might make this Olympic team. Unfortunately, on a personal note, I had played a season in Italy at this time on the volleyball court, their professional league. And I came home from Italy with a boyfriend that was Italian (laughs) in like a pure stereotypical way, I realized he was (laughs) cheating on me between my prelim and my final. And it completely blew me, threw me for a loop in the final. And I was a hot mess on the runway. How did you find out in the middle of all of that? 
Like, weren't you at the track focusing? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. I mean, love will do crazy things for you, but I jumped really well in the prelim. And then it was like my gut kicked in at the wrong time. I remember going, oh my gosh, this is not good. And so I remember calling and trying to confront him about it. He was like, let's just not talk about it right now. And that was all I needed to hear (laughs) to be like, oh my God. (laughs) I was just a hot mess on the track the next day. And I ended up being an alternate. I ended up finishing fourth and only three go. So, you know, you live and learn, right? On a few different levels. Girls that are listening, do not come home with an Italian boyfriend. That is rule number one in sports, apparently. Do not come home with an Italian boyfriend. Or, Or even like, maybe just... If it's not like somebody that you're engaged to get married to, just put the relationship aside yeah. for like a few <laughs> days. Yes, worth it. You know, it like it. that's probably like <laughs> the biggest moral of the story because you just never know. So just bad timing. And yeah, I was absolutely devastated after that second hit of not making it in another sport. So just kind of like a bad time all around in 2004. And when alternates don't go to the games. so. It's, you know, again, like the worst spot to end up in. I'd probably rather be last than fourth. (laughs) How did you process things after that? I mean, did you throw yourself right back into training? Did you take a break for a while? I mean, I see both sides of it. Like some people, they throw themselves right back into training thinking, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And they burn themselves out. Other people will take a break and then that's either good or bad, you know? So it's kind of, it's just... I like to see how people process different things. I did what every young, naive woman would do, which is to go back to Italy and play another volleyball. (laughs) (laughs) Without that boyfriend, I hope. (laughs) And try to find another Italian boyfriend, which I did. I think I just took some time after that. That was 2004. And I went back to Italy and I played another season. And I went back in 2005. I still continued to like high jump. I had a very unique ability, I think, to pick myself back up, which I'm so thankful for. And I don't know if that is something that I was born with or if I just created that resiliency through so many sports and so many experiences that I was able to pick myself back up and move on well. Yeah. I've even found that skill a lot later in life with my career and all the trials and tribulations through being in the real world and in corporate America and all those things. And is this working? Is it not? Okay, that didn't work. Like, what else is next? What am I going to do? And it has been a real challenge at times, but I have never completely like thrown in the towel on myself. Your resiliency is just is really amazing. And I think you're right. Like maybe it was something already naturally ingrained, but it definitely was developed probably through all of those sports and learning how to like, you know, this sucks or it's great, but I have to move on. Like you just, you learned how to like, let it go and keep going. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with, like letting go of anything ever, you know, and you, you learn to do it in very hard ways, like very quickly. That's, that's wildly impressive. Tell me about, cause you're now a high performance and mindset coach. I'm doing that too, which is really fun that we're kind of on that same path, but like, tell me yeah, how you got into that and what that has been like for you. That came after falling down a couple times in what I assumed was my next career. So I came out of business school at UT with an MBA and 
graduated in 2011 from the Combs, thought, you know, now that I have an MBA, I must work for a large CBG or consulting company or investment banker or, you know, whatever, all the things. But I, I got married and I moved to San Diego and that market for business is not like Dallas or Chicago or New York or San Francisco. So I was like, what am I going to do in San Diego with this MBA? And I ended up managing a sales team for a company called The Active Network. And then they moved to Dallas when I was in San Diego. And so after that, I did what every other athlete would do. And I went and sold medical device for Stryker. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in the trauma and reconstruction orthopedic division. I got a little worn out for having to wake up at 2, 3 a.m. and being on call 24-7. Although I loved the OR and I loved, you know, the anatomy of the body and speaking with the surgeons and helping them figure out solutions and all that, it just got to be, you know, exhausting waking up in the middle of the night. We wanted to start a family. So I ended up getting pregnant. I left Stryker. And at that time, I thought, okay, well, what else is stereotypical for athletes to go into that does not require <laughs> middle of the night trips to the OR? And I said, oh, I'll do commercial real estate brokerage. <laughs> You're cracking me up. That is what my whole family does. And so if they are incredibly successful at it, I assume I would be incredibly successful at it. So I went and cold called on CBRE and ended up getting a position as a broker at CBRE or an associate at CBRE. And I did that for about five years, tried to, you know, completely start my own business from scratch. I wasn't mentored by another broker. It was kind of like calling the dad up and saying, Hey dad, you know, how did you negotiate this lease? All that kind of stuff. And so did that for about five years. And then the pandemic hit, I moved to Dallas and I continued in commercial real estate, but I had to kind of start my career over in a new market. And then long story short, I woke up one day and thought, who am I? And what do I want to do with my life? Who do I want to be when I grow up? You hear about people that go through those phases of life of like waking up one day and it needing to make that transition. And so I hired, I hired a coach to help me kind of work through what it was that would be better because I just felt like what I was doing was not it. I love commercial real estate. I really liked the industry of what it was, but I didn't feel like I was making the impact that I wanted to make. So by talking through it, I thought, oh my gosh, exactly what I'm doing by hiring this coach is what I need to be doing. I think that is actually my calling. I completely quit my career in commercial real estate and I launched Ascension Coaching, which is high-performance mindset career coaching. The tagline is Awaken Your Olympian Within because I believe that everyone has an Olympian within them, whatever that looks like. You know, you just have to find it and tap into it. And so I help people get unstuck and optimize their potential. Like I feel like I had to do as an athlete. So I absolutely love it. I think this is the first time in my life, other than when I was an athlete, that I have felt like I'm in the right place. 
That's so good. Which is such a good feeling. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad you found that. Real quick, like where can people find you to um, look into your coaching and stuff? So my website is www.ascensioncoaching.co. It's not .com, .co. Important detail. (laughs) Important detail. You'll go to a totally different place if that's not what you do. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the places. It's, I think, Ascension Coaching is my uh, Instagram. So at Ascension Coaching and then at Ascension Coaching One, I think is Facebook. So yeah, we'll link to them in the show notes just to make sure they can find you. That's awesome. I love that you have found this thing that you are just, you're calling, like you're just made to do this. And I could see you being, with all of your experiences, being so good at guiding people out of the woods for sure. It's so funny, even as we grow up and we're trying to figure out what we want to do and and that just keeps changing. And that's that's okay. We were actually talking to one of my old teammates who is going off to college and we were like, it's okay if you don't know what you want to do. Like we're in our 40s. We're still figuring out (laughs) what to do with ourselves. Like it's okay to be ever evolving and to start from scratch again and to rebuild like that's okay to do. It's also okay to like know exactly what you want to do and do that for the rest of your life. Like we are all different. We're all called to do different things. But you, like in this whole journey too, you kind of discovered something about yourself from growing up that you didn't really know. Like I I read about the story in USA Today and it was right when all the pandemic stuff was hitting, but it was something that you didn't realize was going on in your life. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah. And thanks for asking. So I realized, gosh, it was really right when the pandemic happened that what I had experienced when I was in high school. So my coach the head of development for USA track and field in the high jump had been grooming me when I was in high school. I really didn't realize what grooming was at the time. I just assumed for 20 years after it happened that it was just a mistake that he made to cross the line. And I kind of put it aside and was like, you know what, I'm just going to take this to my grave. Nobody needs to know about it. I'm okay. I'm just not going to confront it. And then uh, about the time that the documentary Leaving Neverland came on, my husband was like, hey, we should watch this one night. I was like, okay. So we turned it on. It was about five or 10 minutes into it that I realized that what happened when I was in high school and the first year of college was not just a mistake, that it was, you know, something that I think had consistently happened with him. So I thought at that time, well, fortunately or unfortunately, they had enacted safe sport because of the Larry Nasser case with USA Gymnastics. So for the first time ever, we had a place to report these things. And so I took advantage of the fact that safe sport was around and I had an actual place to report it. And I made the report with safe sport and he was coaching high school girls at the time. So it just became more urgent for me. And so I, um, I reported him to safe sport. They investigated the complaint and he was found to where he was suspended from coaching. He was not able to coach anymore without safe sport never would have happened. So, and I know that there are a lot of issues with the process of safe sport. I think there are like 15, it's something crazy, like 15,000 reports and only about 1,500 or so of them have been resolved. So I feel really fortunate that mine was resolved. But that movie, that documentary of Leaving Neverland and seeing the reports of the boys 
that were involved with Michael Jackson made me realize that it was an actual issue and that there were probably others involved. So I reached out to another one of my teammates from college who I thought, oh my gosh, like she was affected. And sure enough, she said, yes, it happened to me too. We knew of one other one too. So we actually filed a class action lawsuit against the NCAA to change their system on reporting. Because back when we were in college, my teammate who ended up coming forward as well, she had reported him to the university and the university kind of swept it under the rug. The way that it works is that you have to report to your university. They investigate themselves pretty much. And then they very rarely find themselves guilty. Of course. (laughs) We wanted to change that narrative. We wanted to change how the process went. And we wanted something similar to safe sport to be enacted on a university college level so that there was somewhat of a hotline for you to call if something inappropriate was happening. And so it could be investigated more in a non-biased manner by a third party. So again, like safe sport is only for like the national governing bodies, correct? Like within the USOPC? Correct. And there's no oversight except for themselves and the NCAA. Like if you were to do an analogy, I would consider it being like the USOPC is to the NCAA as the NGBs are to the universities. We were trying to change that and just to at least allow college athletes who may not go on to that level or compete at that level to have a place to report as well without having to like go to their university. Because number one, like it's just really hard to approach your university who's giving you a scholarship or who, you know, it's just too close for comfort. I don't know that I personally ever could have. And I look back on it today and I'm like, would I have been brave enough to do that. No, I don't think so because there was too much on the line for me. I wanted to make an Olympic team. You don't want to lose your scholarship. Yeah. All that stuff. All these things. I don't really want to be looked at like that, but my class action representatives, they did report at the time and were basically kind of like, yeah, no, I mean, that touching was kind of like inappropriate, but like, it's not not a big deal or whatever it was. I mean, there's some documentation in the deposition, but you know, maybe just best for you to transfer schools and we'll just kind of push it under the rug. I didn't want that to be what others had to go through anymore. I wanted it to be a clearer system. And of course we lost, you know, we lost primarily, I think under like the statute of limitations, which is blah. I, you know, yeah, that's that's a whole nother topic of conversation, but you know, it's just unfortunate. I wish that the NCAA would tackle this a little bit harder because it's pretty prevalent. Yeah, no, I agree. The NCAA needs a lot of work. What would you recommend then for athletes who are in college who aren't part of maybe an NGB where you can file a safe sport or something? What would you recommend they do in those situations? I think that what kind of killed us was taking it to, or for my class action representative was to take it to the university instead of filing a report federally or a police report or like some sort of like, like it wasn't on record other than through like a complaint with the university. Because I think that is what, and we, I would have to talk further to our attorneys 
But I think because it wasn't filed with the right person or entity, that is what made it not go on record as like part of through like through the statute of limitations. Because had she reported to the right entity, it would have been within the statute because it was happening. She reported it when it happened. Oh, man. It's just like those little details. Yeah. Very frustrating. (laughs) That make a big difference. But yeah, it's a tricky one, you know, and if you are competing in any way under an NGB or under a coach that is certified with an NGB, I think it still works to call safe sport, but not every athlete in college is. So safe sport and safe sport obviously is way overloaded with cases. So it's not likely unless it's a really interesting situation where it's like, really at risk that you're going to get it taken care of in a reasonable amount of time. Oh man. The journey in sports is uh mini layers. It's like an onion, right? You just keep peeling it, it back and peeling it back. Just keep peeling it back. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you being open and, and vulnerable with that too. Cause I just think that's something that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And so it just continues on without people knowing what to do and, or recognizing, like you said, you didn't even recognize exactly that it was grooming in the process. You know, you didn't even realize that. So just for people to be more aware of those things, I think is really important. Grooming, obviously, because it hits so close to home for me, is such a scary thing because you start to trust these people. You know, he had developed a really good relationship with my parents. My parents sent me off to World Junior Championships with this coach, just me and him, when I was a senior in high school after I had just graduated and I had turned 18. So I think they probably kick themselves at the thought of all of that. They thought he was trustworthy. And I know that like in this day and age, we're kind of like scared to trust anybody with all that we've heard. You know, my advice to parents would just be, be safe, you know, be safer than sorry. And be really hyper aware of where your kid is, you know, what they're doing. Don't let them be alone with someone, no matter how comfortable you feel. And don't let them text either. Like if they're texting with adults or coaches, it needs to be a three-way strand with another athlete or a parent on there so that it's a little more controlled what is being sent back and forth. I think that's something that goes under the radar a lot as well. Yes, because mine started with the recruiting calls. Like the recruiting calls and the letters, I have so many letters, so many handwritten letters that just went completely under the radar because they were addressed to me and I opened them. And looking back on them and reading through them, I'm like, holy cow, you know, like this is. But by the time it got to that point, I had essentially like fallen in love with this person who had also said they were in love with me and you know, I think you're beautiful. And it was scary, you know, looking back on it at the time, I was like, oh my gosh, this really powerful coach says that he loves me and thinks I'm beautiful. And he knew the things to say because I was just a kid that wanted to make an Olympic team and had not put a lot of thought into dances and socializing and boys and 
all those things. So yeah, just opening our eyes because I think it's really important for parents, coaches, athletes, everyone listening to be aware that that is happening and we need to be on the lookout for that to protect ourselves and our teammates and our kids and everything. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It's absolutely incredible. You are a phenomenal athlete in person and it's awesome to reconnect. So hook them, baby. Yes, yes. <laughs> hook them horns. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.